With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply hi there seth abramovich here senior writer at the hollywood reporter This week on It Happened in Hollywood, we have one of the most delightful comedies to come out of Australia of all time. All that and more on this week's episode of It Happened in Hollywood. Well, as hard as it is to believe, in May of this year, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, is going to turn 30. That's enough for multi-generations to discover this highly charming film from Australia. It was made on a shoestring budget and introduced the world to a trio of very likable uh, but uh, very naughty drag queens. They were played by... One legendary actor already, Terrence Stamp, and two up-and-coming Australian actors who are now major stars, one being Hugo Weaving and the other Guy Pearce. Well, there's lots more to tell about how this tiny miracle of a movie came to be, but we'll leave those honors to its writer-director, Stephen Elliott, who joins us this week. They're ready for stardom. They're ready for fame. They're ready for their close-up. Come on, girls. Let's go shopping. This is the story of three hard-working guys. What kind of cabaret do you do? We dress up in women's clothes and parade around mouthing the words to other people's songs. Hello, and welcome back to It Happened in Hollywood. We have Stephen Elliott here, who is the brilliant mind behind one of my favorite comedies, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. That's the full title, although I'm sure sometimes people just call it Priscilla, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, but that's the full title. And boy, did this movie really tickle me when I first saw it. What year did it come out? Are you asking me that now, Seth? (laughs) 94. 1994. 94, 94, but we're in pre-production. I've got the slate on the wall up there, and the slate actually has final slate 674 on October the 3rd, 1993, was when we wrapped. So I actually call the birthday is going to be May this year, which is when we premiered at Cannes. 
that was the birthday. So that's we're we're a couple of minutes away from thirty. From thirty, it's all grown up now. Your little baby. I was a baby <laughs> then. Now I'm just a grizzled, cranky old man. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> well, this movie fascinates me for so many reasons, the most being how ahead of its time it was. You know, now I'm sure you've seen uh, all iterations of Drag Race, you know, in every country, including Down Under, and it's become a sort of mainstream thing and has drawn all kinds of youth to it. But back when you made this, drag was really kind of just within the gay community. It wasn't something that mainstream people really thought about. Is that true? No, drag had been around. I mean, let's face it, drag started in uh, Shakespearean times, which is where, right. where it came from, dressed as, you know, dressed as a guy, basically. So basically, drag had always been, you know, theatrical circles had been around. The English were very good at it, of course, building closets and staying in them. <laughs> and by the time I'd actually, I was coming of age, I was only a kid when I made the film, drag was still stuck in, you know, Barbara Streisand impersonations or Shirley Bassey's impersonations. It was kind of a weird word, but we'd had a slow and the slump, unfortunately, was HIV AIDS. So right. a lot of my childhood growing up was watching it crumble, watching fear come in, watching it kind of fall apart. And then as I came of age, I started going out. And Australia just had this unique quality. Something happened in Australia that wasn't happening anywhere else. They started throwing these what you guys would call raves, but they were basically drag-based raves. But hmm. drag per se changed. They started going less performing traditional and then began to become more and more outrageous. It kind of turned into kabuki cabaret. And it got weirder and weirder and weirder. And I just realized I was at this moment in time where people were sick of being frightened. And hmm. specifically Sydney, Australia led the charge on that one. They just got sick of being frightened. And then this scene erupted around me that just got weird. Have you ever seen drag queens jelly wrestling? You know, <laughs> no. it was it was breathtaking. <laughs> and they were not in drag. I didn't even know what some of these people were, were on. You'd look at this and think, what the hell's going on? So I just kind of caught the moment and began to realize, my God, this moment should be captured. We've had so many years now of fear. And I thought, I'm going to make a film that is, A, a musical, because a musical hadn't been made since some, you know, musicals died with, I have to say, Grease. Yeah, we did Greece on this show, actually, with the director, but yeah. Yeah, Randall, Randall. I mean, you know, what amazing accomplishedness, but they were so successful there for a minute, musicals came back, and then MTV came along, and the MTV right. kind of crashed the musical. It said, So I said, I'm going to make a musical. I'm going to do a film that is about gay people, but is not necessarily a gay film. I'm also going to celebrate. And I just got my timing right boy did you ever yeah yeah i guess that didn't occur to me but it really was a celebration of life this film aids you know which appeared in a lot of queer cinema of the era does not really come up in it or it doesn't come up at all uh, it comes up in one shot i had to actually there's a shot outside broken hill where somebody writes some graffiti on the bus and that right. that was me having to say look i can't make the entire film without going there i think that's unfair so i put it in once and i never went back there again and outside of that i thought right we want to celebrate i don't want to keep going. i don't want to go back into this dark dark hole we've got to come out of this hole so you know it worked and then, of course, the other thing that you were sort of premonitory about is uh, Terrence Stamp plays a transgender character, Bernadette. Yeah. First of all, I feel like this will anger people because now they feel that trans actors should play trans characters. But Terrence Stamp's performance 
is brave. It was brave for him. He had never done anything like it. And what a beautiful humanistic uh, performance. Just wonderful. All of them. I mean, oh, that yeah. is still, you're right, it's a political hot potato and it still is a political, but I'm sorry, you know, you can stick your politics up your bum. I actually <laughs> cast the right people for the right role. The gay community in, in Sydney, I put the word out. I said, everybody turn up, you know, open auditions, let's see what we're doing. Not one single drag performer turned up in three weeks of auditions. And then I later really? found out... It's, yeah, not one. Because, you know, usually we basically kick off casting any time from about nine in the morning till three or four in the afternoon. Of course, none of them are getting up till about eight <laughs> o'clock at night. That's the nature of the job. So years later, they're all complaining that they weren't asked. They were asked and no one showed up and it went out in the trans community. I based Bernadette's on a barmaid that I knew in a bar. And she wasn't happy, and <laughs> only, even over the last couple of years. Well, she didn't like. She knew that so much of that was her, huh. and we, she was not happy. And only a couple of years ago, I actually, on a TV special, I said, I'm going to come clean on this one. And I said, this is who it is. This is who it was based on. She would not appear on camera. She was still angry with me. She said, I, I stole her life. Oh, goodness. Well. But we cast the right people for the right roles. And yeah, if we had to make it today, they'd probably spin around and say, you have to, would have to. And it's like, well, I don't know what kind of film it would be. I think those three actors' careers took off after this film, all three of them. I mean, Terence was suddenly right back on top. Guy took off, Hugo took off, but Tell really didn't want to work very much anymore. So he was kind of happy and he had to do one or two more jobs after this. He landed the right, you know, almost career end for himself. He didn't work after this? Not much, no. Really? Terence is very picky, but Terence does what Terence wants. Like, don't bother going to Terence. He did a few other jobs. It's got to be pretty damn interesting for him to get, to him to get out of bed. So he did a few more films, but yeah, he was happy with his lot. Yeah, well, he's a genius. And I knew him, of course, from Superman 2, where he played General Zod. Am I getting that right? You're getting that right. <laughs> yeah. Great story there in rehearsals in Sydney. He was wandering around and he got completely lost. And he just finally tapped someone on the shoulder and he said, excuse me, I'm lost. And this broad Australian said, aren't we all, mate? And kept walking. And suddenly <laughs> stopped and turned around and said, hang on, you're General Zod. <laughs> so Terence still says, there's still two moments in life he can't get past. He's worked with Fellini. He's worked with Pasolini. I mean, who he's worked with is phenomenal. But he said, I still get stuck with either Bernadette or fucking generals <laughs> well he earned them and then so let's just talk about the other two you mentioned hugo weaving who of course went to great success as the villain in the matrix films he plays your sort of central character tick who's a dad and is sort of pushing the narrative forward so tell a bit about his character and how you landed hugo for it it's very simply put, people talk about the film as a great celebration. They talk about the music. They talk about the jokes. Everybody talks about the costumes. I mean, it's like we're used to that. At the very core of the film, so buried, it's so subtle. It is so gentle and so quiet. It's simply a gay man coming out to his son. Yeah. That's the arc of the film. Yeah. And I think that it's so carefully buried and it's so subtle that it catches, it caught it. I mean, I'll tell you about the premiere later, which has caught everybody by surprise. And it's that performance that absolutely, absolutely nails the film, is, is the tracks that we're stuck on, as you said. It's a narrative, but it's also the, the absolute heart comes out of that. And it's so gentle, I only touch on it one or two times. Yeah, so it required a different kind of actor. And, and then Hugo's, Hugo's got such an odd face. But I'd worked with him many times before as an assistant director, and I knew he was capable of 
going somewhere quietly. Unfortunately, now he's, you know, Hugo's now a go-to Marvin villain because he's got, you know, such an unusual face. But I knew he was a very, he actually is a very, 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 very sensitive actor as well as a show-off when he wants to be. So that for me was it. I knew I knew someone to carry the heart. That worked. That was it. It was my first choice and I got him. Then you can talk about Guy if you want. Hey, let's pack the drag away. You take the lunch and tea. I'll take the ecstasy. Fuck off, you silly queer. I'm getting out of here. A desert holiday. Hip, 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 hooray. Guy Pierce. Yeah. I mean... You know, you think of him as Guy Pierce now, like what a legend. But here he is playing sort of the most clownish or most fun. He's he's having fun. The other two have a darkness kind of around them a bit, or are maybe been around the block too many times, or a little sour. He's living. He is just having the time of his life, and he loves sort of uh, provoking them and just being, the, you know, the little devil. And he really kind of steals the show. His yeah. character's name is Adam. So now he was uh, must have been a very young, upcoming actor when you cast him, right? Oh, he was. He was in a very famous Australian soap opera called Neighbors. Neighbors, where Kylie Minogue started. He worked with Kylie Minogue and another actor, Jason Donovan, and they were the three main characters but he'd done it since he was a kid and he was like in his early 20s now and he was shackled to a very very famous soap opera it was one of the most watched soap operas in the UK in history and so I was looking again I know these characters I've done the scene there's a lot of very very handsome pretty smart boys out there with lips on them I know who they are (laughs) put them in a dress and they're a hundred times worse and so I, I was very clear he was the one character I thought if I was really wanted to cast a real drag performer, it was going to be Adam. And as I said, no one showed up. And then Guy, I, I saw a lot of people and Guy came in and Guy was at that point so desperate to get out of this soap opera, to break this soap opera thing, which he dug himself. And I said, look, you're, you're Mike from Neighbours. And he said, I want to kill Mike from Neighbours. This is my job <laughs> of burying, not Mike for Neighbours. And, you know, I put my foot down and then finally my costume designers, Tim and Lizzie, spun around was still looking for a real drag performer and said, let's be honest here, he said, the other two ain't no oil paintings. <laughs> I think you really do need someone extremely good looking in the cast. And there's a great moment there where even in, in rehearsals, I was like, and I said, okay. I said, Guy, take your shirt off, please. He said, good, took, took your shirt off. And I said, yep, you got it. Yeah, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> we took ample opportunity and I made him go to the gym too. I made him work out real hard. But basically... Once I saw the asset, I went, yep, that's going to look pretty good on camera. (laughs) But all three of them, I mean, I believe are straight, but they all play very convincingly uh, gay and trans women. And I don't think that that's easy. I I think some even gay actors might clean it up too much, for lack of a better word. And it just feels very authentic. It's authentic because it was joyous. I mean, a film was made for nothing at a time when nobody wanted it. The only reason we could get across the line was making it literally for, you know, 1.7 million US dollars. And that was traveling an entire country too, doing the costumes, doing the lot. On film, we were still on Panavision Gold. So, you know, what we pulled off, I still don't know how we did it, but we did it. We drove the trip and we literally would find stuff along the way. But Guy turned to me one day very early on and as they were struggling a bit to get underway and said, Steph, who's going to watch this? And my answer was, absolutely fucking nobody. I said, well, it's going straight to DVD. No one will see this film. So why don't we just have the time of our lives? And that became kind of the mantra with crew too. Suddenly the pressure was off. I said, don't worry about it. You know, we're here to celebrate. Just go with it. And so much was actually there. Terence was in so much pain 
Terence struggled the most because, let's face it, growing up during the 60s, Terence was voted sexiest man alive about 10 times. I mean, wow. he was, he and Michael Caine used to live together and flick through fashion magazines and would spot a model and then have a competition to say who'd be the first person to bring bring her home was how they used to it. So he had this, you know, he was one of the best dressed men I've ever met in my life too. And there he was suddenly, as he saw it, dressed as this old dog was how he saw it on the first. He did not <laughs> like his makeup and hair test. He did not like it. He got really upset. So then I demanded at that point away, then he could have no mirrors. So makeup <laughs> had to be done on him so he couldn't see himself. We kept mirrors away because he got more and more depressed every oh. time he saw himself. And then we're doing the dailies and banned him from looking at dailies so he couldn't go further down a hole. But he was still carrying a lot of uncomfortability and a lot of pain with him, thinking, God, I was the world's sexiest man. And I was, and look at me now. This is. And that pain, actually, you can see it on camera. Mm -hmm. He brought that with him. So whilst the other two were just being immensely naughty and silly, Terence did bring this enormous amount of uncomfortability with him. And he admits it now. He said it, it made the performance because he wasn't happy. Yeah, you can see. But in my mind, it's the character dealing with his transness. Here's what's interesting about the trans things. I don't deal with it. Right. You don't really make a deal of it. Don't make a deal of it. I said, this is a trans character. I know who the real human is. I said, again, I don't want this film to become political. It's not a political film. And I thought, I'm not going to go into it. Transsexual is mentioned a couple of times. The character just is transsexual. Right. Where there's one tiny scene in Broken Hill where he talks about his family, never talked to him again after he got the chop. And that's the only time I go there. That's the only time I go there in the entire film. And it was really interesting to realize it wasn't a noise. It just was. And it worked. People, I don't even think people really realize it's been pointed out to me recently that I did really the first trans character that carried a film ever. And I said, yeah, but the character was trans, but it wasn't about a trans person. Right. I've been told now it was a masterstroke because if I tried to make it today, can you imagine the politics I'd have to deal with? Exactly. It would be really hard work. So Bernadette just was. And somehow, you know, planets align. Lovely moment. We were, uh, there's a shot in the film where um, they get to this Aboriginal community and they sing I Will Survive. And I've got a shot of a full moon coming up in the middle of that. And we were in the car park of Alice Springs Casino doing the final scene, which was in a sunbed on the bus. And as we're doing there, the light suddenly picked up around us. And we all went outside and the biggest moon I've ever seen in my life was rising above us over the casino. So we whipped the second camera out and we got a shot. That moon is absolutely real. And Terence, who's very much into the stars, got his book out and had a look up. And he said, this is a sign. I said, what's that, Terence? He said, film's going to work. I said, really, wow. Terence? He said, it's our last shot. Film's going to work. I said, ah, forget about it. Don't be ridiculous. And uh, he was right. Boy, was he right. How incredible. Oh, my God. The memories of shooting that and actually driving through the, the outback must have been just incredible. We winged it. I mean, we winged it. But I found something that was interesting on the drive. That was all of us. In, you know, there wasn't a lot of us. We had a makeup van. We had one grip truck. One, uh, The sound department were underneath the bus in the baggage department. That's where they lived. <laughs> there was a caravan of maybe, maybe eight vehicles. That was it, including the wardrobe truck, which was sharing with the art department. We were just on the fly. And any time I found something or saw something that was good, I'd literally hop, just bring everybody to a stop <laughs> and say, we're shooting it. And there's a very famous hotel in Broken Hill, which they wander into, which is a big player in the scene. It's so ghastly wonderful. 
It's hand painted. Yeah. It's absolutely horrendous. That was us coming into town, me looking for pubs and the local film scout there said, oh, you don't want to go into that pub. I said, why not? She said, you don't want to go in there. No one goes in there. <laughs> it was a great moment. I walked in. I said, oh my God, we've just struck gold. I said, this is it. <laughs> that hotel, which may have been one of the most bizarre hotels I've ever found in the world, became a real hub. We did a lot of the film out of that, including other scenes from other things. So it was amazing what you could find on the road and literally pick up and use. Well, we did it. It never ends, does it? All that space. So what now? I think I want to go home. Let's go backwards to how it happened for you and where you were in your life. You said you were in your 20s. And you had made one film before this, correct? Correct. I wanted to be a filmmaker since I was a kid. I was one of the first, I think I'm in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's first weddingographer because <laughs> no one had done weddings basically on moving picture per se. And that was the invention of the Umatic machine, which was a big fat cassette. It was the world's first video camera. It wasn't available for home yet, but I had access to one. So at about 14, I started doing video weddings on my weekends from school, and the camera was bigger than I was. <laughs> and the tape machine, which is a big old fat pneumatic, took another kid to carry around. Right. So I found myself directing at 14, and I got very good at it. I got quite evil too. I could actually do the wedding, and by then people couldn't believe they had a, a camera rolling the whole time that didn't have to stop. <laughs> like they were, everyone was in awe to have to stop and change a, a cassette every 20 minutes. But then I got so good at it, I used to let them, everyone would be not paying attention to the wedding. Everyone was looking at camera. Everyone was smiling. Bride and groom were smiling. They couldn't believe that this was, they're getting televised per se. By the end of it, <laughs> I was saying to the bride, saying, could you walk down the aisle a, a bit again, love, and hold your tummy in? Are you looking a bit fat? And they'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'd do it again. And I got so evil in the end, I was making them re-ice wedding cakes. I'd make them do the bridal waltz to something more interesting. But everyone was so in awe of the concept of their wedding being televised, I actually learned to direct. And by the time I then went became an editor for a bit as a kid, kid editor, and then went onto the floor as an assistant director, and by 23, I was ready. So I wrote mm -hmm. two scripts, one called Frauds and one called Priscilla. I took them both to the Cannes Film Festival. Both of them got financed. And then I had wow. to make a decision as to which film was going to go first. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I chose the latter. I chose my first film, Frauds, first because... I had a piece of cast attached called Phil Collins, who was making his movie debut. 
and he was at the height of his Phil Collinsness. Then he was basically one of the biggest artists in the world, and so began the nightmare. <laughs> no, it, it was the worst experience of my life. I got picked up by a Hollywood studio. Film got taken off me. I was completely and utterly destroyed. Oh no! It was the most horrible experience. But I thank that experience because I came out of it and said, "I'm done. I'm never making another movie again." I had the classic Hollywood. You know, you'll never eat lunch in this town again, all that business. I was treated like just a hick. I mean, they took the film off me, took it to L.A., recut it. Re- it was just the most horrible experience. And I finally finished the film and walked away and said, no, nah, I'm never going back. I'm not doing it. But I had this other one ready to go. And my producer, thank God, said, just give it one last shot. It's a tiny budget film. We promise no one will ever tell you what to do. Just make your own film. So they created a little very protective work. And I gave it one last shot. I'm still very scarred by that first film. And it's a reason why I've never done a Hollywood film. I'm sorry to hear that. And I know that after Priscilla, I watched a documentary on YouTube about the making of one of your follow-ups, Eye of the Beholder. Yeah. Do you know that that movie's on YouTube? Yeah. Oh, no, the documentary's on YouTube. Yeah, I know it's on YouTube. Yeah. People should see it. I don't want to take it down, but people should see it because it's a good life lesson of how everything can just go completely south for the winter. (laughs) I'm glad you've seen it because I do, when I do film lectures now, I actually screen it to people and watch their faces and realize, can this get any more out of control? I mean, it it was absolutely well. I love that documentary. It's called Killing Priscilla if you want to find it on YouTube, people. It's really worth it. It's watching me take on a big project without the money with really evil, evil financiers. Everything goes wrong, and it's a classic. And, and the bottom line is, when I still look at the finished film, it limps across the finishing line. It just just makes it. But there's still a good film in there. And it's with you and McGregor, of course. You and McGregor, Ashley Judd, Genevieve Bujol, right. yeah, Jason Priestley, straight out of Beverly Hills 90210. It's a really odd movie. It was my attempt to do something in really advanced surrealism. And so, yeah, I've chosen the indie path ever since. I've never actually done the Hollywood thing. How long did it take you to write the script for? Uh, 14 uh, days. No. 14 days, top to tail. So, you know, I know a lot of people that listen to us are screenwriters. Was it just a burst of creativity and it was all working? Because I know it usually takes a lot longer to write a screenplay. It was in me. I'd been out on the scene for a while, as I said, during this amazing Sydney scene that was going off. One line is dropping out of people's mouths, left, right and centre. I was just taking them all down. I was looking at capturing things. And then I don't know why it was fully formed. I thought about it for a while. I just thought about it. And I learned that from having done a Noel Coward film, that Noel Coward used to do the same thing. Noel Coward could write a play in three days, but he'd think about it for three years. Right. So it was one of those weird moments where I just thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. When the time came, it fell out. And it fell out and it was the first draft that I took to Cannes and people just went, this is a knockout. Oh my God, this is blah, blah. And on and on they went. I said, no, it was, it, I kind of lived it. So yeah, of course, totally open as I did. Once we found stuff on the road, we'd use it. Added stuff as we went along, we'd just go with it. So yeah, it was not a hard ride. So you have the guts at 23 or 24 to go to Cannes. And I find that hard to imagine. Like, uh, I've never made anything, but here's my script. Will you read it? How are you getting people to even pay attention to you? Well, nobody was paying attention to me. I mean, I was just basically a kid from Australia with nothing. I did do two little short films, which I did on 16mm to give you, like, literally a couple of scene tastes of what it would look like. Oh, no kidding. And it just, it took me two days. Just said, we'll do a couple of jokes. It was, no one had been doing anything like that. So I had these little samples with some good camera moves. You know, they were lit. They looked good. 
So they, the script came with a little sample, yes, a DVD, this new thing called a DVD, which I had a couple of a tastes of what it might look like. But basically, I'm not shy. I was determined. I'd made up my mind at 14 I was going to be doing this, and by 22 I was on my way. So literally, the break came at Cannes where I found out there was some major ICM agents in town, and I knew someone who knew someone who knew someone and said this is probably the highest person, ranking person in Los Angeles is in town at the moment, the head of ICM. If you can get to this guy, so literally through a friend, through a friend, I found out what his room number was. I found out what hotel he was in. And then I just turned up and knocked on the door and the door opened. There was this poor fellow whose bags hadn't arrived, who was due to walk up the red carpet in three hours time, who was still in his flight pajamas and I said, hello, you don't know who I am. My name is Stephen Elliott. I have two films and blah, 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 blah. And the guy just looked at me and said, my bag hasn't arrived. I don't know. No, no, please, you have no right to do this. Please don't do this again. And went to shut the door. I just stuck my foot in the door. <laughs> and he slammed and he slammed right on my foot. And I said, I'm not leaving. Literally through the crack between my foot, I put the two scripts. I just literally threw them through the door. And I said, and I will come back and keep bugging you until I get a response. Well, he sent them off to ICM in Los Angeles, and both of them came back with extremely good readers' reports. That's how we got underway. That's unbelievable. I mean, you literally have to break into someone's hotel room to get You've got to. I mean, you want to get something done now? I worry about the generation of today. The answer is if you want to, as a director, I know there's a lot of us who know how to do it. There's no such thing as no. Mm. And there's no problems. There's just opportunities. I mean, I had that very much instilled in me, and I still did it. My last film, we didn't have traffic control was a period film and we didn't have the money and we didn't have traffic control and we had trucks and basically cars that were set in the in the 60s and suddenly I just said you know what I can deal with that everybody know what you want to do I went up and lay down in the middle of the road a busy road it was an expressway and I lay on the road and basically all cars thought it was an accident came to a standstill and I just screamed roll from the ground and they got two tanks in whilst the traffic stopped and they're still looking at me going, yeah and it just who cares? You know what? If you've got to do shit like that, just do shit like that. It's like, I don't think I've ever made a film where I paid for a location permit in my life. No, really? No, never, never. <laughs> Wing it. Wing it until you get into trouble, until someone calls the police. And then I, I can put the accent on and go, oh, so sorry, officer. We're Australians. We don't understand how to do all that. And they go, well, sorry, son, you've got to have a location permit here. And you go, oh, really? Where are those? Where, where do I get them from? Do we get them in Australia? The whole time we're shooting. Keep camera rolling. <laughs> just tell the actors just to keep knocking one off after the other. There's no such thing as no. Great lesson. Great lesson. The end of it was post-can was very good. This is the most interesting part of the whole tale was I made the film, no interruptions. That was the promise that they'd never let, per se, the Americans in because I'd never survived. So we did it with European money. We, we did it with a company called Polygram that were just starting as a studio. They were Polygram Records. So then basically I was struggling with music. When Polygram picked up the film for no money, I brought half of it from the Australian government. Polygram said, oh, by the way, you have to use our library. And when I said, well, that's not what I'd written, they said, well, that's the deal. You use Polygram films or all our songs. And I said, okay, well, let's have a look. And they went, Michael Kuhn, the head of Polygram said, Oh, I think I bought Motown yesterday, and I blinked. <laughs> then I looked at their catalogue. They had Abba Gold. They had the entire Abba. Oh, you know, like talk about a chocolate box that fell from that out of nowhere. All those songs, they said, oh, it's yours. You just pick pick songs. And I didn't wow. have 
to pay for one of them. At that very point in time, you remember ABBA couldn't get arrested. <laughs> they were in the slump before ABBA took off again. But I knew ABBA was going to take off again. You know, the, I believe in the 20-year cycle in music. Basically, you look at 50s music took off, which is Greece. Randall will adhere to that one. 50s music took off in the 70s. 60s music took off in the 80s. Big chill. And I got to the 90s and I said, 70s music's going to take off. I got very, very lucky. On it came. Everything from the soundtrack came from a free library. Whoever gets that? That does answer a question, which is how did you get all these amazing songs? So one of the songs that I didn't even know that opens the film is I've Been to Paradise, but I've Never Been to Me, which is now one of my favorite One of the most ridiculous songs ever built, and it was a Motown song. Wow. So I'm looking through the Motown catalogue, which was drowning me. I was looking at what Polygram had just bought it, and I was drowning. And the one song that jumped out of me of the 17,000 songs that they had was Charlene's I've Been to Paradise, But I've Never Been to Me. And I went, oh, my God, this is a gift because it's <laughs> one of the great forgotten tragedies of a song it's so hilarious i mean it's so weird this woman is talking to someone and she's had this incredible life and she's up and the other one's a mother and she's saying about your sad little life is be happy with it you know i've been on boats and and it's not all it's correct i've slept with priests <laughs> it's just horrendous that wasn't our song though the plan was to open the song with abba and close with abba and i was actually planning on opening it with abba's some of us which okay. is uh, only abba fans will know what that is which is quite sad and then we we're going to end with Mamma Mia. ABBA's contract was up and they've been with Polygram Records since the beginning but their contract was up and as we got closer towards the end they started shopping around to see if somebody they wanted to sell their catalogue somebody else to manage. Polygram wanted it very aggressively they decided to shop so although I was told I had ABBA I was told the rights expire on the day we start shooting and so a negotiation then took place at that point, they were fighting to hang on to the catalogue. And they, they, had, they were right because they knew she was going to blow. It was going to happen. So we got right up to the day of shoot. There was no deal. They hadn't come to an agreement. They were close. But I'm going, I'm shooting in 12 hours. I need clearance. We bought the costumes and we couldn't go. And by the time we got to day one of shoot, which is the opening of the film, in the morning, we did not have clearance from ABBA. So literally, I pulled Charlene's I've Been to Paradise, Never Been to Me. Literally, we did it pretty much live in the most costumes that we just literally were pulling out of the truck. And at midday, I got the call very late at night to say, we've struck a deal with ABBA, you're good to go. So we had our ABBA costumes made. But Charlene was a step in for the morning whilst we were watching the, the clock tick by to get us so we could do ABBA. So the opening and the closing number are both shot in one day, day one of shoot. And so the closing number is ABBA. 
Mamma Mia. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy that it went the way it did because I love now. I that's one of my favorite songs. Is that insane? Yeah. <laughs> Paradise. I it's love insanity. it. It's insanity. It's insanity. It's it's like one of the worst songs ever written, but it's so bad it's good. And for the Australian premiere of the stage show, we dug her up. We found her. We found Charlene. No kidding. Yeah, she'd retired, and we got her out. And we made it do it, and she hadn't sung it. And. 35 years or something and she got out and she sang it live at the premiere and talk about jaws on the floor people were just stunned (laughs) i once read the wiki for that song and it it was like it came out and did nothing and then some years later some dj started playing it and it caught on that time it caught it caught a sleeper as we used to call them then yeah and that there was a male response song made Yes, there was. There was, there was. Another good one was Alicia Bridges' I Love the Nightlife, which was, for me also, that actually happened to be on my list. Action. realized that Polygram owned it, I was in heaven, but I still needed artist's approval and Alicia Bridges just came back with a no. No kidding. Flat no. And I said, why? And and we just came back through some person to simply say her answer is no, you can't use it. So being one never to take no for an answer, I put feelers (laughs) out and I found that she was a DJ in a gay bar in Atlanta. So I flew to Atlanta and turned up at her bar and (laughs) bowled on up to the DJ booth. And I said, I'm introducing myself. My name is Stefan. I contacted you about a song. So she, that does work, by the way, cold calls. She said, let me finish my set. And she sat me down and she said, look, that song ruined my life. I never got the rights. They made me sing it. I never got any rights from it. I never got paid a cent. She said, it ruined my life. It's just, I hate it. I can't stand it. And and I said, I'm really sorry for that. I'm really sorry for that. Can I have it? But I still needed your written permission at that point to use your voice. So she caved and she gave it to me. Oh, I mean, first of all, again, I so admire your tenacity. (laughs) Don't take no for an answer. No such thing as no. And that's so tragic for her, though. You know, I associate that song with another film, Love at First Bite. That's where it came from. Correct. That's where it came from. It was written for that film. And what was really even sadder is that after that, though, after this, once Priscilla became a global hit, some promoter got all of them together. Charlene got Alicia, got all of them, and basically created this Priscilla traveling show, which he was taking globally where they were all going to sing the hits of the film by the artists. And that was, you know, all of them. Everyone, he couldn't get Abra, of course, but everybody else basically took it up on this great tour. And I think about four weeks in, they were, I think, somewhere in somewhere mid-Europe like Germany. And he ran out of money and did a runner and left them all there in hotel rooms where they had no way of getting home or getting, let alone getting paid, getting home, anything. He just took off. So... It ended, poor old Alicia ended up on yet another really unhappy ending. That's so tragic. We we have to cherish our d- disco divas. What is going on here? They left them, just High left them. High and dry. High and dry in a Munich hotel room and, and did a runner. It's terrible stuff. That is terrible. Anyway, let me go on past there because I just got to go. So we finished the film, got our music okay. in, got ourselves done. And then we were the sh- first film in the world to, I realized that we have a record in the film too. There was a new piece of contraption in that had been invented 
and nobody wanted to touch it because it wasn't working properly yet. But they came to us and said, we'll give you this equipment if you make your film on this equipment. And it was called an Avid. Okay. So I believe we are the first film in the world to cut on Avid, which is now the industry standard for film edit. Wow. And it was horrible because the screen was only about six pixels. <laughs> so we were basically cutting to a blur. You could see characters, you could see where we were, but you couldn't actually look at any facial recognition of what was going on. So I was playing the video cassettes alongside to check the shots that I knew were on scene off the time code. So, but I'd be looking at the, t and we'd line the, the television with the cassette in up against the blurry screen of this new generation thing called an Avid. And so I believe we're the first feature in the film to cut on Avid. So the, your film before that, you did it the old fashioned way. The way that they had been making movies since 1910. That was the last time I was using film and sticky tape. So anyway, we finished the film, we show it to Cannes, I'm still very damaged by Cannes. I was very damaged by my last film. By the way, the film before that, Frauds, made main competition in Cannes. And I mm. had to, before I started shoot of Priscilla, I actually had to go to Cannes in main competition. Incredibly damaged. I mean, I was just so broken. And I looked at this film. I don't even recognize the film that is there now. It was just hacked to pieces into something else. But it still made main competition Cannes. And that's very hard having to walk through the world's largest press contingent with a cardboard smile on your face trying to pretend that this is all good when it wasn't good. I just wanted to get out of there. And then a year later, I'm back. We showed it to Cannes. They said, we're in. So the year later, I was back again with a second film. But wow. this was Priscilla. There's a rule in Cannes where you're allowed to screen the film in your home territory. As long as it's not being screened anywhere else, you can screen it in your own. Some films open in their own countries before they go to the festival. That is their one little rule that they've got. And as none of us and most people don't use it, and as we were there, we were told of that law. And I said, you can screen it. And I said, can we screen it once? And they said, well, in your own territory. And I said, what if we don't screen it? What if we just screen it once, not in our home territory? Because on the way to Cannes, the San Francisco Gay and Lesbian Film Festival was on. Hmm. So the night before we screened in Cannes, we stopped in San Francisco and did a late night surprise screening. It didn't even have a name. So we had people handing out flyers to see special film. So the night before I'm supposed to fly to Cannes for the Cannes premiere, I screened it at the Castro to 1,200 people. Wow. That feels like a rising moon, like you know, like another sign. It wasn't, Seth. It was a disaster. Oh, what? <laughs> it did not go well. What? The booing started. But what? The film, they didn't like it. They began to boo. They began to hiss. And I'm sitting there dying thinking, oh, my God, we're dead in the water. It's not working. And then I got up on stage for question and answer. And they just came at me. They said I had, I'm laughing at gay issues. I didn't take on HIV. There were no male sex scenes. There were, the crowd was very, 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 very hostile. And it didn't go down very well. And I oh, literally, I lost my temper on stage. And I said, you know what, people, if you want to make that film, you make that film. And you and your 10 mates can go see it. This film was made for a wider audience. I'm sorry if you don't like it. And if you want to make your own film, get off your asses, go make your own film. And basically, you can all go get fucked. And literally <laughs> stormed off stage. So we went into Cannes the next day thinking, I said, I'm finished. I'm over. My entire career is in pieces. And then we had to go to the Palais, full house at the Palais. And I just sat there and thought, here we go. And of course, it went the other way. Unbelievable. It exploded. It absolutely exploded. I mean, the audience went nuts. 
And I know then that I'd made the right decision. I really was not making a gay film full of politics. I was making a celebration of gay life. Yeah, I mean, it's I can't even wrap my head around the reaction in San Francisco. But it's like you said before that politics can ruin movies. Yeah, and it, it does. It does, but not only on top of that, we were coming out of the HIV crisis. So people were angry. Mm-hmm. I accept it. I understand where the anger was coming from, but it needed a tonic. And of course, all those people who were in the Castro that night will completely deny that story ever happened and said they had the best night time of their entire lives now. (laughs) (laughs) And was it in competition at Cannes or was it not? No, we got the midnight, they do the midnight screening, which is they always give one film the midnight screening. So that one was not in competition. That was the midnight screening, but we won the Prix de Public which they, they have, the, the public get to pick one prize of the entire festival. So we weren't in competition, but we won the Cannes Prix de Public. Well, I mean, there you go. Audience Award is always... Uh, got know, the Audience I mean, Award, yeah. So that was nice. We haven't spoken about the costumes yet, but of course you went on to win an, uh, the Oscar for the costumes. The costume designers are Tim Chappell and Lizzie Gardner. Correct. How did you know them and how did they come to do the costumes for the film? Lizzie was my first girlfriend as a teenager. And Tim, I found on a bar doing a very obscurist act when he was only 17 years old and his drag name was Trampoline. (laughs) And he was using trampolines. Of course. course. So I just thought Lizzie then has since gone on to become a pretty major costume designer. That was like they were two friends and I just put them together and we dreamed big. That's all you can say. We had a cost, we had a budget of nothing. Tim's mum worked at Kmart, which is, I guess you guys have Kmart, but it's like Ross. Mm-hmm. She got us a 25% discount. So the costume budget was 5000 Australian dollars, which is about 3000 American dollars. Unbelievable. I mean, that is, just blows my mind. And it wins we, the Oscar. We were just literally, we won the Oscar. We were going to op shops, opportunity shops, charity shops. And the more ideas I got, I just got weirder and weirder and weirder. And it's phenomenal what you can do when you've got no money, but you're actually 100% out there in the creativity department. They look amazing, but they're literally, they're made of cardboard and crepe paper. I mean, not one. (laughs) Even at the end of the film, we were offered to go and put them in the Smithsonian. And and like, those costumes didn't survive the shoot. By the end (laughs) of it, we were just using spray paint and glue just to hold them together. And in one instance, Tim actually used a hot glue gun and at one point on Hugo's entire dress at the end was coming off. He used a staple gun because we were out of time. And he just said, this is going to stink. <laughs> so Hugo was stapled into his costume. Planets lined up on that one. And on top of that, when it went out, it went out against a film that year. I've forgotten what it was called, but a huge film that had a costume budget of about $10 million, And they beat it. So it's amazing what you can do with a little bit of ingenuity. Absolutely. And I love the one with the sandals, the dress made out of all of like beach thong sandals. Yeah, they cost 10 bucks. <laughs> so brilliant though. And then the ostrich heads that they're wearing. And, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's cut polystyrene, paint, painted with some glitter on them. It cost <laughs> about $5. It was good. The big one, of course, is the bus stop aria, which is guys yeah. singing opera up there. And I had a very strong vision on that. I, I, I told them to go study the Rolls Royce emblem on the front of a car. And said, that's what I want on top of a bus, but I want it big. So we got out into the desert. We did a test on these sad little wings, which were made out of very heavy sequins. And we did a run. It was just terrible. And I just said, this is not going to work. It's not the image. It looks flat. It looks terrible. So I sent Tim back to Sydney overnight and I said, go and get me every piece of available silver lame you can find. I don't care how long, just grab silver lame. So Tim flew back overnight 
went to all the theater production companies, just found everywhere. He literally had 12 hours to come back with huge patches of silver lame, which they sewed all night together. And we just put them together. And that massive train on the bus top literally was done literally in 12 hours, all borrowed. Then we had to cut them all up under the stitching and give it all back again. But this <laughs> horrendous moment where we got out into the desert for this scene out in the moon plains in uh, South Australia. And there was no wind. No. So we just did it. We did one run driving along and that tail was just dragging along in the dirt and it wasn't working. And I had eight minutes in this moment. And I just said, okay, um, cut it, just cut it, take 80% of it off. So we've got something that can flap in time that will get some kind of movement. And Tim literally picked up the scissors. And at that moment, as the scissors hit this enormous lame, this wind came from absolutely out of nowhere, this big desert run, and I just screamed, roll, and oh off we went. God. And the wind just picked up, and it picked up this tail, and the whole thing took flight. And we shot that in. We had three cameras on that one. We shot that in about 30 minutes. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's such a, uh, just a classic shot. And it really is the iconic shot. It's the poster. It's yeah. so beautiful. Yep. It's so fabulous. Then we had to take all the lame back, which was by now covered in dust, ruined, <laughs> cut into pieces, got into trouble for that one. I can't believe they lent it to you. They wanted their lame back. <laughs> Never say no. They all wanted their lame back and their lame all came back ruined. Well, that's an amazing story. Uh, so cool. And you mentioned the musical already, and I saw it in uh, the West End when it originally opened. I happened to be in London, and that was an amazing way to sort of reboot or revive the property. Can you talk a bit about how that happened? Yeah, I didn't really want to do it. I was just thinking, nah, no, it's kind of leave it, leave it as what it is. And I just didn't think so. I was one of the ones who were blocking it all the way, then decided just let him do it. Just Get on with it and see what you come up with. And then somebody eventually rang me at one point and said, you've got to come in. I said, why? And he said, the straight guys have taken over the gay bar. <laughs> and yeah, the straight guys had taken over the gay bar. So I re-entered production at that point and said, okay, okay, I'm going to have to take a stand here. And then, then I got involved. Then I got into it. And it was a chance also to complete some unsung moment. There was stuff to this ideas that I had that I'd always wanted to do, which I could never, and jokes, a couple of jokes I couldn't do. Classic example, in the film, there's a sequence where Bernadette has fallen asleep. She's fallen asleep with Bob outside, and they've had this romantic evening together. Mm -hmm. And Hugo gets out of the bus and says, and they've been eating cake. And then Hugo gets out of the bus and wanders over and says, I've been waiting all my life for this. Someone left my cake out in the rain. And the gag was <laughs> at that point, then I wanted to go into MacArthur Park. Right, right. Now, of course. that was not a polygram song, so therefore I couldn't use it. So in the film, it's done as spoken. He says, Bernice has left her cake out in the rain. 
But in the stage musical, I could follow it through. So in the okay. stage musical, I did the most enormous MacArthur Park production number, which I would have done in the film. Huh. So it was a chance to actually um, finish some concepts and some ideas. And then the stage show ex- exploded and then brought it into a whole new generation. And then suddenly, it's funny, you'd open the stage show and then film sales would spike again because suddenly you're watching. And I realized that 30 years old now, we've literally gone through three generations. Wow. Because now it's on Amazon now for the first time for free as Amazon. And I'm realizing now I'm getting the, the mails coming back in again. I realize I'm get, it's now getting its third generation of people discovering the film. Right. All these little And the stage show did it again. And then suddenly now Amazon's helping us do it again. So these say, here's some news. You can have a first. You ready? Yes. Let's break some news. There's a new stage show coming out. A reboot of the original musical? No, we are starting again and we're doing a full AI immersive in the round version of the stage show with a new book, new songs, new everything. That's in rehearsals in London now. We will open in about a month. We're going full AI and we're going to reinvent it again in the weirdest possible way. Did you say AI? Yes, it's AI driven. What does that mean exactly? Or some of the tricks you don't know what AI is capable of. Let's just say that... A computer is creating this? No, it's a live show in the rounds where we'll have a thousand people standing. The show is on on the move. It's immersive. And let's say the the camera will be able to pick someone in the audience and throw them up onto the LEDs and turn them into drag queens on the flick of a switch. So audience members can actually join the show in full drag, even though they're not dressed in drag. Wow. So this is sort of like the next stage in, in live entertainment. Yeah, we got to, let's embrace it. I mean, it's the right animal for it. So we open in a month. It's called Priscilla the Party. Wow. Okay. And if it works in London, then we're going to take it global. No kidding. And then, yeah. Wow. Okay. Priscilla the Party. You heard it here first. Now I got to check this out. I, last time I was in London, I checked out the ABBA Voyage. Yeah. The hologram show. So maybe you can beam them in and <laughs> it'll be a, a whole virtual party. Look it up online. It is online now. We're selling tickets, but no one has any idea of what it is yet. But it's going to be pretty special. Well, that sounds really cool. Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever tried to make a TV show out of it? I did actually once. I mean, they bullied me into it, and I wrote a couple of episodes of what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do, which I think was a genius idea, it's so good, I'm not throwing it out yet. I can't even tell you what it was. But it was so out of the park weird that they just couldn't cope, and it was working title pictures had picked it up and then when it boiled down to it what they when they read my three episodes they were pretty shocked I said that's not what we want and I said what do you want and they said we want a sitcom we want three drag queens in a dressing room and I went I'm out no well now I want to know what you came up with doesn't mean I'm finished with the idea then yet does it because <laughs> it's pretty out there I'm picturing noir or horror or something darker but we'll we shall see look yeah just look at this face nothing's moving <laughs> Maybe I nailed it. Okay, well, anyway, I can't believe it's the 30th anniversary. That's crazy. I mean, I guess I'm old now, if that's if that's the case. But Seth, we're all <laughs> old, mate. But the nice part is you'll be able to tell me, because this is one thing, when people do meet me, absolutely everybody tells me where they were, what cinema, on many now, you, what time, or the day they watched it on a DVD. Almost everybody remembers where they were 30 years ago when they saw the film. Where were you? When did you first see the film? I saw it in Montreal. I'm from Montreal. There's a, a sort of like indie cinema in, uh, in it was called uh, La Cité. So I, I remember the theater. I remember it. Everyone does. Yeah. 
I met Tom Cruise the other day, and Tom Cruise, not the book, it's a couple of years ago now, Tom Cruise told me what theater he was and what time it was that he saw it. Wow, Tom Cruise, Priscilla Queen of the Desert fan. I love it. <laughs> well, congratulations, and thank you so much. It's so cool to meet you. You're so funny and fun, and Priscilla means so much to so many people, so thank you for bringing it to us, and what a wonderful thing you've done, and thank you for joining us. Yeah, well, I, you know what? The honest truth is, it began to drive me nuts, but it took me a couple of years to realize that it's the gift that keeps on giving to a lot of people. So I'm thankful to be here and thank you. You're still interested. Yeah, you have to embrace it. All right, Stefan, thank you. Well, a huge thank you once again to Stefan Elliott, who told us everything we ever wanted to know about the making of the classic The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Hopefully that inspired you to throw some ABBA or disco on the old record player and maybe a colorful frock and party in your own living room. And until next week, we'll see you in Hollywood. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.